Well, last week we, we ended our teaching talking about how we should be calling out to our Father in heaven. You know, and I, I kind of was equating it to my son just calling out, Daddy, Daddy, and my other, uh, my other son, when I, you know, they're so excited when I get home and so forth. But it's very important for us to never forget who our Creator is and what our relationship is to us and to Him. The freedom that He gives when we clothe ourselves in Him. We are voluntarily becoming His servant, His slave, as we talked about last week. So Paul continues in, in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather you're known by God, how is it that you are turning your back to those weak and miserable forces, or turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Basically, we're slaves to something, either to the ways of this world or the ways of God. And, and the longer you spend around somebody, the more you can tell which one they're slave to, whether it's uh, the ways of God or the ways of the world. So Paul is talking to those who were once slaves of this world, who had become slaves of God, people of God, and freedom through Christ, and now they're going backwards to a weakened position. I mean, going back to being, a, uh, being owned by somebody, that, that's not what you want. That's not what our desire is. God is trying to give us freedom. <clears throat> he says, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? In verse 9, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And, you know, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. And he's, you know, that word you is very important. It's a y'all word. It's a, it's, it's a bigger word than just you. He's talking about, I've wasted my efforts on all y'all out there. Paul has spent all his time with them and on, you know, writing letters and conversing and sending people back and forth. And he spent all his time there when he was hurting. We're going to talk about that today and so forth. But, but now they're going backwards. He even says, have I wasted my time with y'all? Have you ever felt like you wasted your time with someone? Where you think, oh boy, ah, why did I spend so much time on them or with them? They just destroyed whatever happened. This is how Paul feels. He hasn't given them, uh, given up on them yet, and, and this is how we should, you know, this is why. Uh, he should spend the time and effort to send them the letter. This is why he's, he's uh, you know, trying to build those relationships and keep those relationships. Uh, you know, the sentiment is there. I, I understand the whole idea of, man, I, I put a lot of time, effort, and energy here, and I'm getting nothing out. Should I just back off from this? And we have to be careful not to write off people so quickly because you never know what God has planned for them. You may have planted that seed, and someone else's, you know, waters it, and then years later, someone goes to harvest it. And you may never see the fruit of your labor. This is why you should always seek the Lord as a mentor as, to others. I can remember back in, you know, my days as a youth pastor. And, you know, I was there for, for many years, and the church was exploding. We had a lot of great things going on. And, and, you know, I took a group of junior high kids, and I really mentored them. I mean, they became my kids. I understand I didn't have kids. And, you know, you would get that look like, well, you'll understand one day when you have kids. And it's like, no, you don't understand. I put my effort and time and energy, energy into some of these kids. They feel like my kids. So when they hurt, I hurt. And when, they, when they're happy, I'm happy for them and so forth. 
So I put all this time, effort, and energy, and then I left that ministry and went on uh, to do other things in ministry. And, and as I came back, and, and uh, one time I was talking with the senior pastor, and he came to me, and he goes, Alan, I, I want you to understand something. All the time you put into these kids, all that, that biblical knowledge that you, you know, the Bible studies and the prayer time and, and, and the goofy times and, and going rafting and, and going up to the mountains and going to camp, all that time that you put into them was worth it. He goes, if you look around our church today, the ones who are serving were those that were in your ministry and you helped build that. Now, I wasn't the only one. Other people were there. You know, I had a lot of, a lot of uh, great adults working along beside me and stuff. But the point is, when we put our time, effort, and energy, sometimes we don't see that fruit. It may be years before we see that fruit. So we shouldn't give up on people. He goes on in, in verse 12, he, and he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong, as you know. It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with content or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Wow. I mean, that's a huge statement there. Verse 15, it says, Where then is your blessing of me? I can testify that if, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. And they want to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the, the purpose is good, and to be so, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you, my dear children, he says in verse 19, for, I, uh, for whom I am again in the past of ch- uh, pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm compl- uh, perplexed about you. So Paul even mentions, man, he's, he's kind of got an attitude here, and he, he wants to be with him, and he wants to show him that loving tone that he's had before, but he's kind of having to lay down the law. You know, hey, this is how it is. Come on, people. Have I wasted my time? Paul has been trying to remind the Galatians of where they've been, what they've gone through to get to this point, and what he wants them to do. Others have been trying to, to get them back to two things, believing and obeying. Those go together, okay? But the way they're trying to do it is is the results are are a merit-based system. Paul comes from a different side of things. He says, just believe. Just believe. That's all you need to do. For your belief, or from your belief comes salvation. No added human effort. No religious stanima involved. Just believe. Then he says, after that, the order is important. You see this all throughout uh, Paul's writing as he writes to different people and stuff. He's talking about how, you know, even church order is important and so forth. We shouldn't be all willy-nilly and just let everything happen in, in the service and so forth. But the Holy Spirit, he says later on, he says, the Holy Spirit will come and live within you and grow. And you will live a life of obedience that comes from your belief in God. This is how, this, this is a result of what you believe. 
this is how we are as believers. We get to that point where we start living our lives and believing in God so much that the obedience comes. But it's not through obedience that we earn anything. So throughout this letter, Paul's been saying, these two belief systems, they're worlds apart. And with so much at stake, he's debating them. In a way, in a way he's <clears throat> point by point, and he's very smart in his arguments. He uses these complex analogies, uh, sarcasm, uh, irony. He even uses his own personal history with Christ. He uses the Old Testament text, and he explains it to him to make his points. He uses Abraham and how faith played a role in his life. He even hijacks pagan cultural icons to explain the gospels we talked about last week. Now, why does he do all this? Because he has Jewish Christian Galatians, and he has Roman Christians Galatians. He doesn't want anybody or anyone in, the, in Galatia to miss the grace and freedom that's offered through Jesus Christ. No one's to be left out. No Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male or female. We are all, every one of us, we're all at the foot of the cross. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, any other culture you can think of, we're all at the foot of the cross. Money, no money. CEO to janitor, to blue collar, to white collar, to farmer, to fruit picker, to inner city, to suburbs, to fancy estate, to the row house. We all meet at the foot of the cross. Nobody gets left out when they believe. We're all on the same footing. So chapter 1 through 4, until about verse 11, he pulls out all the stops. I mean, he's just swinging for the fences. He's going for that home run. And then all of this pauses, starting in verse uh, about 12, and he shifts all of a sudden. He gets very personal. You know, Paul is the theologian. We know him as that. He's the letter writer. We know that. And he's the apostle, and he's the authority. But now we get to see the friend Paul. He is also their friend. He loves these people with, with a love of a parent. You know, that, that heart of a parent is so important for us to remember. Uh, it's funny. You have one child, and everything goes into loving that child. It's amazing. And then you're, you're pregnant again. Or in our case, we went through the adoption. And you ask yourselves a question. And I'm sure everyone asks themselves a question. I'm not the, the only one who asks this. Can I love them just as much? And then an amazing thing happens. Somehow you have more heart, more love to put into that second child, just like the first. Now, before kids, you wanted peace and quiet around the house. You just turn off the book, you read, I mean, turn off the TV, you read a book, or you go do something, whatever you want to do. I mean, that's how it was. I put extra, you know, I put a lot of time up at church, you know, extra time and so forth. Once I had kids, people were like, well, you don't, you're not up at, you know, up at church on the weekends and, and working as much. I'm like, yeah, I got a baby. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you have all the extra time, you just do whatever you want. But when you have kids, it's not so easy, especially when something's going on. Or you see your child struggling with something. I mean, it's hard to have peace, isn't it? It's hard to be happy if they're not happy. Your heart hurts when you see them struggling. Man, I mean, it just... This, you know, this, this example is kind of a, a small struggle. I don't want to embarrass my son with big examples. I'd use him as an example enough. Uh, you know, both of them here or there. 
But the other day he was playing Minecraft online with some friends. And another friend wanted to, to join the game. And the person who was leading the game, he has to let them in. But he didn't want to let them in. And I could hear Brandon saying to his friend, let him in. Why don't you let him in? Come on, let him in. And this goes on and on and on for, for five minutes and then ten minutes. And I could tell Brandon was like struggling with this. And he would switch over and, and play, with this, uh, play with the other kid and then come back to the other guys and say, let him in. And finally I hear Brandon say this, and I was so proud. He, would, he, he, he said to them, how would you feel if it was you? How would you feel if you were the one playing or I mean, you were you knew everybody else was playing, and you couldn't play. So the other kid finally lets him at last, and everybody's okay and stuff. But again, that's a small example of a child struggling, and we can learn from these situations. It's good for our kids to go through this, learn how to to take things to the Lord that are that are out of our control. But in the middle of the situation, my heart just ached for him. I wanted to get on the mic and tell the little punk to let the other friend in. You know what I'm saying? Not really. He's not really a little punk. He's just being a kid. You know, all kids act like this at some point. Even Brandon acts like this at some point. But I wanted to solve the heartache my son was going through, you know, for his friend. Now, we've all walked through things that are, you know, with our kids that are, that are a thousand times more difficult. Illness, injustice, loss. Prodigal sons and daughters, and an anguish that goes with it. Why? Because our hearts are connected at such a deep level. This is the type of connectivity that, that Paul's had with his friends. His is deep, spiritual, heart-led connectivity. Uh, you know, connected. Uh, I can't even say the word. He was connected to them. And he had this, you know, an anguish that Paul had for them for, for the bullying that was happening by his brothers and sisters who were bringing false teachers to them, false teachings and so forth. So let me ask you a question. Do you ache for people? Have you ever built a relationship in this church with others that when they go through something, it makes you ache for them? This is what Paul's talking about. When things get deep in the weeds, do you anguish with them? Do you cry for them? Is it hard for you to sleep at night because, because, you're, uh, you know, because of what they're going through? Do you have those type of relationships within this church? This is what Paul is modeling for us. That we might become like him and have those relationships where our hearts break for each other. Or the opposite, where we rejoice with each other when great things and wonderful things are happening, where God just intervenes in the middle of the situation, or God is just, you're just going through a wonderful time and, and God is blessing you. This kind of community, where that is normal, that's what we want to become at Valley Christian. Now, Paul is also showing another side of himself. He's kind of vulnerable here. He talks about his sickness. Now, how many of you like to talk about your sickness? Anyone want to raise their hand out there? Yeah, none of us do. Oftentimes as pastors, we're the last ones to find out when someone is sick. I mean, I, I'm like excited when somebody tells me, hey, I went into the hospital because at least they're telling me so we can get people praying and we, I can pray for them and I can think about them and, and so forth. We have so many people that, that just say, well, I, don't, I just didn't want to bother you. I was in the hospital for 10 days. What? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, I got out four days ago. 
well, why didn't you say something, you know? See, we don't know what Paul was dealing with. All sorts of writings about what it might have been, but we just don't know. We know it was nasty. We know it was repulsive. It was a big deal. In fact, he says in verse 12, um, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. You took care of me. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. It seems like he wasn't even planning on staying there, and then something happened, and he had to stop there, so he started preaching the gospel, because that's what he does. Verse 14, he says, and even though my illness was, was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Okay, why would, why would a Jewish, or why would a church treat somebody with contempt or scorn when it came to an illness? <laughs> well, that illness had to be pretty bad. You know, we don't know exactly what it was, but, but they could have just shunned them. Maybe it made them unclean, especially for the Jewish Christians. Uh, you know, that they had the whole clean and unclean thing going on, and, and, and so they would have contempt for him because they would consider him unclean. We, we're not really sure. But he goes on, he says, Instead, you welcome me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. That's a huge sin, sentence. They embraced him. They absolutely loved each other. They shared things. They formed this bond. And Paul is bringing this up in this passage. The false teachers could try to influence, but they didn't have the relationship that Paul had with them. Ultimately, ultimately Paul's appeal to logic, rationality, to Old Testament theology, his overall masterful defense of the grace and freedom through Jesus Christ, all these things were wrapped up in this warm, soft blanket of love and authentic friendship. And that's an important lesson for us today. It's not enough to, to believe in the right thing, to believe in, in theology and, and make sure it's in line with Orthodox Christianity. And, you know, all that's wonderful. It's a good foundation for us. But it has to be kept closely with a relationship within the church and with Jesus. Otherwise, we become cold and calculated and, and really religious. You know, the, the church is a relational place. It is where you become family. You share your struggles. You build community. The Greek word for this, and, and it was big in the 80s and 90s, but the Greek word for this is koinonia. Each one of us has this need. This is why it's tough right now that we're not meeting. We all have a need to belong, to share struggles, to, to see people, to, to carry our burdens um, with us so we're not on our own. Now, for some reason in America, we are in need of this type of relationship. We're kind of, a, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of people. Get, you know, get out of my way and just let me do it myself. So what can we learn from this? What should we look like? I mean, we can listen to the sermon, we can learn facts, but how do we apply that to ourselves and to our church? How do we become a relational environment? First of all, we have to resist the pull that our church just become a, another transactional environment. Transactional environment, that, that's kind of a computer term. It's a, it's a place or an organization that, that systematizes exchanges for speed and convenience. Uh, a great example of this is a fast food place. It's all about portion control, 
How long does it take to get this food to there and out the window? Um, you know, right now everything's like out the window, you know, uh, can't go in. Well, some places are opening up, but, but you see, it's all about how long does it take, timing how long it takes. So customers are happy. It's all about timing. You know, typical restaurant, uh, fast food restaurants has seats and benches. And most of, most of them, have, uh, they're, they're ergonomically designed, so you won't sit there too long. They want you to sit down. They want you to eat. They want you to be uncomfortable because they want you to leave so somebody else can come in and sit down and eat and leave. It's all about the numbers. See, our culture is reflected in that mentality. It is so easy to make every interchange a transactional environment. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and had someone you know, I mean, like really know, wait on you? It's different. You're friends. But it's awkward. Because there's a certain way you order and a certain way you ask for things or more things at the table. And it's often rather cold, but you have this warm relationship with them. So it's just kind of awkward sometimes. You got to get over that. You know, with our social media, we don't really have a community uh, in, in many ways. It robs us of a genuine personal relationship with people. I mean, I don't even have to go to the store anymore if I don't want to. I just have others do it for me, and it shows up at my door. They don't even knock on, I mean, well, they, they knock on the door. They kind of like doorbell ditch, you know, where they, you know, as kids, you'd ring the doorbell and run off, you know. They don't even wait to say hi. They just drop it off right now. Very transactional environment. Now, there are some exemption, exemptions or exceptions to this. You know, we have work when we get back to work for many people. We have school, we have families, but by and large, our culture is headed this way. Here's the thing. A church can get caught up in this. We can become a reductionist community where everything is based on a transactional environment. I trade my attendance for the sermon content. Do I like the pastor or not? I trade my attendance for worship style or things that appeal to me personally. Do they have this? Do they have that? Or business credibility. I go to church, you know, it shows me being a good, upstanding member of the community. Not like there's something going on there because it's become transactional. You know, here in California, we don't necessarily have that particular issue because oftentimes we actually lose credibility for going to church because society is so against the church sometimes out here. Because it seems like we're looked at as needing something, almost like a lower class citizen or a lower class of people, you know. But we have an incredible opportunity here with this. As a church, we can become so genuine that when other people enter into our doors, it's like a a breath of fresh air that they can breathe in where they go, wow, something, something is different here. They actually care about me. Somebody actually walked up to me, looked me in the eye, and talked to me. Right now, when we come back, we're not supposed to give hugs. This should be really hard for us because we love each other. This is our vision, to partner with the Holy Spirit to create such a grace-driven, loving, supporting environment that when people start interacting with us, they can't help but want to know more about Jesus. Because of your loving, supporting environment. 
I want you, or I want to know who Jesus is and why he has changed you. That's what we're looking for. Verse 15, he goes on and says, Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. This is the type of relationship they had. They would have done anything for each other. Paul is reminding them of that. Where did all the blessings go? The agitators came in, and all of a sudden, all those blessings and all that feeling with each other, it all stopped. And when religion comes in, relationships often leave. The two can't occupy the same space oftentimes. You get the idea that if, if the religious people had their way, all you would have is transitional environment. Get it all down the checklist. I mean, I love checklists. I mean, I have a checklist for everything. In my phone, I have an app for checklists. I have 118 checklists on that, and I use most of them. But if the church became a checklist, how messed up would we be? Oh, showed up the church, click. Got coffee and a snack, click, click. Said hi to someone, at least one person, click. Well, I sang a little bit, not really wholeheartedly, but I, I sang, click. Oh, it's time for communion. Yeah, I took communion. Click. Didn't fall asleep listening to Alan. Check, 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 check. Say goodbye to somebody. Check. Off to lunch. Yes, check. See you next week. But this is not what we're really about. Do you agree with that? It is not just in, in Galatia that this happens. It happens in every generation since. It's, it's been going on forever. The most intense battle, I think, was in the Middle Ages in Europe. Christianity had been reduced to a, a transactional environment. Uh, they were actually selling indulgences. So you could go out and sin. This is a bad doctrine that started in the 1300s. If you donate money to the church, you get this little receipt. And you could get off so many years in purgatory. Now, purgatory was this false doctrine that was taught. It's like a holding tank for Christians. And then after your death between heaven and earth, you would go and stay in purgatory until you were ready for heaven. And it wasn't a pleasant place. It was a place to pay for your sins. Which, ironic, goes totally against the Word of God when it comes to Jesus. And talks about Jesus paying for our sins. So you had this crep, you know, this, the, the, this doctrine creeping into the church and being taught as sound doctrine. And then it became, not only could you donate for years off of yours, for a special price, you could pay for a relative either living or already dead. So what you had was well-meaning people, not knowing the scriptures, falling for this junk, this heresy. Then in the year 1517, a monk named Johann Tetzel, this guy moved to North Germany, supposed to spell, uh, sell indulgences to help rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was an important project for the Catholic Church at the time. Tetzel wasn't the most upstanding person to begin with. Uh, he, had a, uh, he had a great line he used, when a coin rings, a soul in purgatory springs. I mean, he was a good salesman. 
Half the money earned stayed in the area for him and, and their churches. But the other half went to Rome to help rebuild the basilica. Someone else lived in the same German town that, uh, about that time that was also famous. Does the name Martin Luther ring a bell? He was another monk that wrestled deeply with the inconsistencies of the teaching of the church and the word of God. And he couldn't make sense of it all. Martin studied the book of Galatians and, you know, because what, of what was going on in the church. He goes on to critique the church in many areas. The first one was, was on the monks not being able to marry. I mean, basically, he started the first e-harmony for monks. Nuns and monks would, would come to him and they would say, you know what, I, I, I want to be married. And, and when they were escaping the Catholic Church and so forth, and they wanted to get married, so he would literally hook them up. He had, he had a little thing going there. But eventually, a, a nun called Catherine caught his eye, and he got married. He had lots of kids. He lived a great life being married, and Martin loved the book of Galatians so much, he would refer to his wife, my Galatians. Now, not very romantic for us. Back then, maybe, I don't know. So the story goes that in 1517, Martin was lecturing one night, and, and happened, it happened to be payday, and he was going home, and everybody would flock to the pubs and the bars, and they would drink, and it's a Friday night, having fun. And Martin was walking alone, and he saw a guy in the gutter, and he recognized him from the church. So he picks him up and carry, to carry him home. He starts talking to him, starts ministering to him, and, you know, and he starts telling him, man, the, the Lord has so much for you. Keep the money for your family. Don't waste it. Keep it for your kids. Don't go out drinking all the time. And the guy comes out of a stupor enough and says, don't worry about it, Martin. I have this indulgence that I brought from Tetzel. I bought it on Wednesday so I could enjoy my Friday. So Tetzel had taken it to a whole new low, selling for future planned sins not yet committed. I mean, this just incensed Martin. He, he went to a study and produced one of the most uh, you know, famous documents that has ever been written after the Bible. It was a series of 99, uh, 95 points that called out the church for its abuses. He wrote them on a huge piece of paper, and he nailed them to a Catholic church, the door of the Catholic church, on October 31st, 1517. And it had all these, they call it the 95 Thesis, and Thesis number 27 says, Those who assert that a soul, uh, soul straight away flies out of purgatory as a coin tinkles in the collection box are preaching an invention of man. I mean, you ought to go and look them up and, and read many of them. I mean, it's just amazing. Martin didn't mean to start a revolution. He actually wrote it in Latin so only the priest could read it. It was meant to start a conversation within the church because he loved the church. He wanted the church to redeem itself. He wanted it to reform from the inside out. But as he nailed it there, he walked away, and a publisher happened to be walking by and saw the thesis there, saw this, this huge piece of paper with all these things written on it. And the publisher, uh, the, the, well, the printing press had just been invented the last century and, and books and pamphlets were, were being printed. And, you know, but content was really in a shortage. So the publishers would go by these public and bulletin boards that oftentimes would be at the church to see if anything good was there. 
And he sees this huge piece of paper. He tears it off and he takes it to somebody to translate it. And they translate it and he prints it. And it sold like wildfire. Within one week, the whole town had it. Within one month, it said all of Germany had it. Within three months, all of Western Europe had it. People read it and God started a a little snowball that turned into an avalanche. Christians in every generation have to fight for our freedom. We need to fight for the grace that is in Jesus Christ. The grace and the freedom bought by Christ on Calvary. And that is our heritage. That is our distinctive. It is our very life and it's full of grace and truth. This is why our church week after week preaches the blood. The blood shed by Christ and His broken body. And there's nothing that any one of us can do with our human effort, our will, our skill to earn our salvation. The only thing we can do is trust in Him and the great things He did on the cross and the great things He will do for us. That is the message of grace and the freedom it produces in our lives. It's an amazing message. Our goal is to not just receive the grace and freedom to be saved from our sins. It is to become more like Jesus each and every day. Are you reflecting His image are you reflecting his character? Is he inside of you? Where, where your actions are those of Christ, and he, you know, he redeems all of us, and it reflects in us and becomes Jesus on this earth. Not only that, there's another component, and it's a part of all of us. It's a, a communal aspect where we all become one. Our relationships are important for our walk with God and to each other. Because it's those relationships that carry us through the thick and the thin, that celebrate with us, that cry with us, that rejoice with us, that, that, that minister to us when those, when those are, you know, difficult times come. It's those relationships that are important. And God builds on the foundation of what He did on the cross So you and I can do it here on earth until He returns. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for showing the the example, the relationship that You had with the disciples, that You just didn't leave them. You came back. The Holy Spirit is within us. I thank You for people like Paul who are showing us the way uh, of, of relationships, that it's not just about the knowledge. He, He could out debate anybody, Lord. But he also had that deep personal relationship. I pray within our church and the church within our community and the churches across America that you would build our relationships to the point where we, we are one in the body. We're there for each other. And when people walk in, Lord, they feel that. They sense a, a, a breath of fresh air and that breath is you, Lord, your Holy Spirit just loving on us and loving on them, that that would come through us, that it would draw people, attract people to the church. We know that you can do that, Lord, and we pray that you would use us in that endeavor. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you. May he envelop you. May he overtake you so this world sees his presence in you. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week.